This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit chalcedon.edu to purchase from their site. This is a reading of Chariots of Prophetic Fire, Studies in Elijah and Elisha, by Rusas John Rustuni, published in 2003. Chapter 1, The Living God And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. 1 Kings 17 and verse 1 There is a strangeness about Elijah and a remoteness, a fierce and lonely figure. He appears in history without introduction and with no mention of his family. We are given the name of Elijah's father and Isaiah's, Jeremiah's, Ezekiel's, and others, but not Elijah's. It is as if Elijah is totally cut off from his family and separated unto the Lord. We are told only that he is a Tishbite from Gilead. To distinguish his home from the Tishba or the Thispa in Napatili, Elijah's home area was sparsely saddled, rocky, and wild. However, it is easy to see a marked resemblance between our time and Elijah's, and between the work of the faithful pastor today and Elijah's calling. Elijah's was a time of judgment. Ours is as well. But there was a deeper resemblance. Elijah's day was an age of syncretism, of radical compromise between the worship of the Lord and Baal worship. The two had been blended together to make one religion, so that a refusal to see the necessary for uncompromising religion marked Israel. This was nothing new. At the very birth of Israel, Jeroboam insisted on the unity of Baal worship and the faith of Jehovah. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25 through 33. Israel rarely denied the Lord or professed open apostasy. Rather, it pursued a course of religious syncretism using the name of the Lord, but absorbing with their religion with whatever other faith was expedient for them. Thus, they were not open pagans, but pagans who practiced their unbelief under the cover of the Lord's name. Syncretism is again our problem. The Baalim were lords, other forces, powers, and persons who were accorded sovereignty over man. Today, Baal worship is again prevalent in the name of the Lord. Humanistic statism is easily and readily submitted to by the churchmen. Children are placed in humanistic state schools, given into the hands of the enemies of God, and people are only indignant if you condemn this practice. The major concern of most church members is not the Lord's battles, nor the urgency to make a stand against compromise, but how can I best enjoy life? The similarity does not end there. Ahab's day was one of prosperity, 
a false prosperity that was largely the product of inflation. Ahab had inherited a strong realm from his father, Omari, who had pursued syncretism on the one hand and financially advantageous alliances on the other. Ahab married a Phoenician princess, Jezebel, daughter of Ethabaal, king of Zidonians. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31. This placed him in a favored position with a wealthy merchant state. Our age, too, has been marked by inflationary prosperity, and the loosening of moral and religious standards is one result. People want things, not qualities, nor virtues. Some Puritan autobiographies tell us of the men's despair over their sins. Now, despair is commonplace because people lack things. On all sides, men speak, after President Kennedy, of, quote, the revolution of rising expectations, end quote. This revolution demands more material wealth for all men and diminishes the need for moral and educational performance and excellence. It is now a virtue to tolerate evil and to be intolerant of any material lack for men. Elijah steps into this prosperity scene like John the Baptist in a similar situation centuries later. A desert man proclaiming judgment to an age unwilling to hear anything but promises of more material wealth. Elijah had apparently confronted Ahab before. James chapter 5 and verse 17 tells us that Elijah prayed for drought and God heard his prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth for the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. James 5, verse 16 through 18. Elijah had prayed in terms of God's revealed word, which very plainly speaks of drought as a judgment on sin. And if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. Leviticus chapter 26 verses 18 and 19. Take heed to yourselves, that your heart be not deceived, and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath will be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven, and there be no rain, and that the land yielded not her fruit, lest ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16 and 17. And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. And the Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down upon thee, until thou be destroyed. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 23 and 24. 
Solomon also refers to this fact of drought as judgment in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 35. In this situation, Israel added to her sins by following Jezebel and her priests. It would be a serious error to place the burden of guilt on Jezebel. The Bible clearly blames Ahab. The responsibility was his. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30 through 33. Moreover, the people were no less guilty. They loved compromise, and they refused Elijah's summons to stand with him and the Lord. 1 Kings 18, verse 21. The Jezebels of history must bear their own sins. We cannot lay ours upon them also. The essence of true faith is the humble confession of our personal responsibility for sin. To say with David, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done evil in thy sight. And thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Psalms, chapter 51, verse 3 and 4. If the sin of Israel had only been the sin of Ahab and Jezebel, God's judgment would have struck them alone. We know, of course, that judgment did come to Ahab's house. 1 Kings 20, verse 20 through 43. In a fearful way, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 22 through 37. But eventually judgment and captivity also came to all of Israel. For the present, the drought was a judgment on all, from Ahab to the simplest Israelite. When does judgment come? Our Lord tells us how, in every age, from Noah's day to the second coming, judgment comes. But as the days of Noah were, so also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of Son of Man be. Matthew chapter 24 Verse 37 and 39. These words primarily apply to our Lord's judgment on Jerusalem and Judea in the Jewish-Roman War of A.D. 66 through 70. They also apply to every time of judgment. Why? Our Lord tells us, first, that such men see nothing in history but natural processes and the daily affairs of life. God is remote, unreal, and history is a process determined by man. History is seen as man's affair, and man feels he is firmly in charge. Whatever religious profession man may make, they act as natural humanists and see their personal and national lives as determined by nature and man. Second, whatever their religious profession, men in such an age imply that God is either dead or very far away and indifferent. God's intervention in history is in the ancient past. The present is determined by very natural processes. In short, there is no belief in the total and providential government by God the Lord. We have an implicit God-is-dead religion. Into this situation, God sends Elijah with the declaration, A long drought is coming. Elijah's word is to the point. 
As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Three things stand out in this proclamation. First, of course, a total drought is declared. Neither dew nor rain. Second, Elijah declares God to be the living God. As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand. The remote or dead God is suddenly very much alive in judgment. Elijah stands before God as his servant to be sent out as his messenger as God's command. He stands before the king of kings as his courier to go forth on the Lord's orders to proclaim his judgments. Elijah here, and in 1 Kings 18 and verse 15, declares himself to be a throne man, one who comes from before the great king at his command. Later, Elisha, to make it clear he indeed wears Elijah's mantle as the throne man, makes the same statement. Second Kings chapter 3 and verse 14. If we believe that God is remote, then we are like Ahab's people, half humanists and half hypocritical churchmen. The living God is never remote. He is closer to us than we are to ourselves. He is the living God, for whom all things are naked and open to his sight. Unto the eyes of man with whom we have to do. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. We are never more face to face with anything than the living God. Third, Elijah declares on God's command, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Keel's comment on this is to the point. Elijah thereby describes himself as one unto whose power the God of Israel has given up the idolatrous kings and his people. In James chapter 5 and verse 17 and 18, this act of Elijah is ascribed to the power of his prayers. Since Elijah quote, was also a man such as we are, unquote, inasmuch as the prophets received their power to work solely through faith and the intercourse with God in prayer, and faith gives power to move mountains, end quote. We meet God face to face in every event, and in the most secret hiding place of our lives. We also meet him in his Elijahs, who, quote, according to his word, unquote, set forth his judgments, his law, his grace, and to his word to every generation. He is the inescapable God. Elijah is now dead, but the God of Elijah lives. Quote, Able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham, end quote. Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. Or Elijah's to go forth at his command. We have a worldwide drought, and we may have more. We have had even worse leanness of soul on a judgment. Psalms 106 and verse 15. Elijah, whose name means Jehovah is my God, tells us that God lives and his judgments are total ones. The question is, then God lives, but shall we? But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and into thy heart that thou mayest do it. See, I have set before thee this day life and good, 
and death and evil. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14 and 15. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 and 20.